Good morning. My name is Cameron, one of the pastors here, and it's my joy today to kick off our new Advent series. The series is called Awaiting a Messiah, and I'll be focusing on Emmanuel this morning from Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1. So you could flip to Isaiah 7 if you want to, or I can just read that for us when we get there. And so To set this up, let me remind you of what Advent is and what it's not. It's not simply about counting down until Santa Claus comes. I'm sorry, it's okay if you're into that, you know, but we, uh, a lot of times all we think about is the calendar, the candles, when there's so much more meaning to it than that. It does mean coming, but it references the coming of Jesus Christ. So during the week of Advent, or the four weeks of Advent, we do a couple things. One is that we identify with the saints of the Old Testament and their longing for a Messiah, their desire to be freed from captivity. So we resonate with that. We have our own captivity known as sin. And then secondly, we rejoice that we have got to see Jesus. He, we're on this side of the new covenant, that he came and he saved us. And so we rejoice in that, but we also anticipate his second coming. There's still reason to to long, to desire his return because life is not exactly as it should be. And so we long for the time when he comes and makes everything right. Right. So in this series, every sermon will basically follow the same outline. We want to identify four promises that God gives in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And so you'll see that it's like the shepherd, Emmanuel, the victor, and then we want to do three things. Every pastor's outline will be similar. We want to see like, what did it actually mean for those people during that time frame? Okay. Then how did that get fulfilled with Jesus in the new Testament? What benefits do we get from that? And then finally, we'll make mention to how we get the greater fulfillment. How does, how do we get to enjoy the full blessings of the promise full on during Jesus' second coming? So now today our emphasis is Emmanuel. And to say it out loud, what does that mean? It means God with us. We all know what this is about. But as I shared last gathering, sometimes you go into a sermon prep period as a pastor, think, I got this in the bag. This is easy. God with us. Then I realize that when you get into the original promise that was given in the original context, it requires layers of understanding Old Testament history and fulfilled prophecy. It was laborious, trying to get it ready. And just random pastoral observation. Then secondly, here's the second thing. I do think this message is especially timely because just to be transparent, many in our church for months, from church staffs to families to more recent situations, there's a lot of suffering happening. And so it's a timely word to understand that God himself is actually with us. I still want to camp out there And I've told you I'm not that charismatic, but even last night as I was prepping this, I was having my heart, a hard time actually getting my heart to get fired up about Old Testament prophecy, okay, layers of history. And I said, you know what, Jesus, what is this? Like, I'm a geek. I usually like that kind of thing. You hear a lot about that when I preach. And so I really feel the Spirit of God said, Cameron, still focus on the main contours of your sermon. But I also want you to add in to the end some practical coaching for people that get theologically that God's with us, but they're having a hard time connecting that with their heart. Can I do that this morning? Can I just kind of call a pastoral audible, preach a little bit, share my heart just a little bit, 
and we'll trust the Spirit of God this morning. So as I studied out Emmanuel, God with us, it is warm and fuzzy in a sense. We appreciate that. But in the original context, it was actually a bit more ferocious than that. It's kind of like my David sermon, David and Goliath. It has more to do with God being with his people in battle. So if I could summarize for you, when you hear the word Emmanuel, what should click for you? What should, what should that bring to your mind? Here's my sentence. Jesus is relentlessly committed to the salvation of his people. That's what Emmanuel means. It's glorious news that Christ is utterly committed to your salvation. And he will see your salvation through until the very end. Now, when I think about this, I can't help but think about the way that Brittany and I were utterly committed to the physical preservation of our little baby Knox, okay? Back in my bachelor years, I never would have imagined that my life would literally be keyed to feeding a baby a bottle every three hours. It's really a cycle that will drive you insane when you're sleep deprived. And so we are so committed to feeding this little man. By the way, he's doing great now. He's a preemie. He's up to nearly eight pounds. So he's an actual baby now. And so we're so committed that sleep is sacrificed. Work and entertainment is compromised. Sermon prep is interrupted. But we will drop whatever we're doing to make sure he gets his bottle. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Knox does not always appreciate this. And what I mean by this is when we're a little bit late, he turns red as a beet. I mean, he starts screaming bloody murder. Neighbor's lights start flipping on. And it's as if in his little mind, he thinks we have forsaken him. And of course, that's not the reality. And then there's other times when we even have the bottle in hand, trying to land it in the, the mouth. He's got the sucker fish going, just trying to get something. And he turns to find salvation in his own means. You know, he tries to eat the blanket, his thumb, my hand, anything. He can get those little suction lips on. And so he doesn't know it now. I mean, he's literally a month old. But what I hope he'll learn is that because I'm his dad, because I'm his father, that I am utterly committed to preserving him physically, though he may not realize it, because I love him. And church, what I hope the Spirit of God helps us to see today, that in a much greater way, Jesus Christ is committed to your spiritual preservation. I hope that resonates to you. He's committed to your salvation. When you trust your life to Jesus, you become God's adopted sons and daughters. And understand that the loving heart of the Heavenly Father, He's continually motivated to protect you to provide for you, and to sustain the souls of his kids. Now, I think we need reminders like this, especially during hard days, because there are times in our Christian journey this won't seem to be the case, okay? There are times in my little son's life when he feels abandoned by his dad, and we'll feel abandoned by God at times. When tragedy strikes, when the early morning phone call comes, you will experience situations that cause you to wonder whether or not God's left you. Well, hear me, based on this promise that goes from Isaiah to Matthew, that just because it may seem like God is silent at times, He never ceases to be committed to your salvation. He's always there. He's always working. He's always working behind the scenes for your good, though it doesn't make sense. 
If you've trusted in him, church, rest your heart in this fact that he will see you through until the very end. And it's awesome observation based on life experience and with my baby that there are times when we don't understand the ways of God that not only do we despair, but times, there's times when we're tempted to look elsewhere. You know, just as Knox gets frustrated and trades in the true sustenance of milk for the blanket, the hand, there's no food there, boy. Oftentimes, we tend to turn to alternate sources of salvation during the hard moments. When God's, God doesn't seem to be showing up like we would want Him to. You know, relationships we shouldn't be a part of. Shady financial dealings to get ahead. Abusive substances to help us cope with the pain. All the while, we know... If we are believers, if we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that these alternate means will never give us the salvation that we're looking for. So again, with the help of God, just the Holy Spirit, my simple prayer this morning is, I hope we can get a glimpse of the Father's deep commitment to us. That He's committed to our salvation from first to last. And so as opposed to giving up during the hard days, I hope that reality will motivate us to keep pressing on. So another way to say it is, I pray we just get a sense of God in our spirit, from His spirit, that His commitment to us is so great that it only makes sense then to keep committing our lives to Him, no matter what happens. Now, to get our head around the promise again of what Emmanuel means, we've got to look back to the Old Testament. So what did it mean for the people who originally received the promise in Isaiah Seven. Well, for King Ahaz, a very unlikely Christmas character, not one we usually see in nativity scenes, and the people of Judah, here's what Emmanuel meant. I think we have a slide for it. Yeah. God guaranteed victory over an earthly enemy and preserved a remnant. Okay, it's kind of a mouthful, but this is a duly fulfilled prophecy. It actually came to pass, I believe, for those people and then in a greater way for us. So again, I'm going to summarize this. Again, I like the geek out, Old Testament prophecy. I'm going to do it on-the-fly summation of kind of what's happening so we can kind of make sure we see the trees or we don't get lost in the trees and we see the forest. So to get historical bearings, here's the backdrop of Isaiah 7. We studied David's life, right? Well, then after Solomon, when the kingdom flourished, when he died, you remember the kingdom was divided. The northern kingdom, ten tribes... They basically did what Texans have longed to do their whole lives. They seceded, okay? They did their own thing. The state bird became, uh, you know, barbecue chicken, and they got four-wheel drives, and they just kind of lived life. And then only two tribes in the south remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty. So there's a divided kingdom. When we get to Isaiah 7, we're 200 years into this dysfunctional political situation. We think at times ours may be dysfunctional, this is really dysfunctional. And here's what's happening. The Assyrian Empire, bloodthirsty, brutal, they're growing. Now, they were basically like the Alabama Crimson Tide of the Fertile Crescent, okay? They just wipe out everybody. They're kicking butt, they're taking names, they're dominating, taking over territories. And so northern Israel, they realize like, hey, they're going to wipe us out. So as opposed to trusting in God... They form an alliance with Syria, by the way, which is different from Assyria. That's why it's a little bit confusing. And they don't trust God, so they turn to their own devices. Now, for reinforcements, 
they try to fold Judah, the southern kingdom, into this. Like, hey, you need to join us. And in fact, if you don't join us, we'll just attack you and kill you, Ahaz, and take your throne. And so Ahaz was not interested, and it wasn't because he was going to trust in God and trust God for Judah's welfare. It's simply because he wanted his personal power too much. He would not relinquish control of his throne. And so we pick up in verse 2. Let me just set the scene for you here. Here is Ahaz's response to the threat. The threat that, remember, the Assyrians are out here, but northern Israel and Syria, they are bearing down on him. And so here's what's happening. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people, they shook as the trees of the forest shake before wind. So again, you see a man who's not trusting in God. He trusts in his own devices. And so thankfully, as God often does for us, he sends this man a word of comfort through Isaiah. This is how Isaiah gets entered into this period of history. I'm going to summarize this, but Isaiah shows up and Ahaz is busy looking at the city's water supply. Again, he's done everything in his own power to get ready for the battle. And Isaiah simply says, stop it, man. Like, quit being in such a frenzy. Um, God's in complete control. He offered him a prophecy that the Lord would have his back and take care of him and he would wipe out the enemies. And it sounded okay, but here was the key thing. Ahaz had to relinquish all trust, all authority, had to give all of his kingly rights to the Lord in order for this arrangement to to work out well, to have God's favor. And the tragedy is, in verses 10 through 12, as opposed to trusting in God, yes, Lord, you, you fought the battle for me, as opposed to having his favor on his kingdom, on his people, he makes a detrimental decision, and he seals his fate and the fate of the generation. This is fascinating to me. Notice how prideful this is. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and asked a sign. Spoke to Ahaz. He said this, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. The scholars agree that's just pious language. He doesn't really mean that. Basically, God's saying, Hey, I sent you a messenger. Chill out. I've got your back. I'm going to fight for you. If you don't believe me, Ask me for any sign imaginable. There's a blank check given. I don't know about y'all, but I would have asked for something incredibly miraculous, like an undefeated Tennessee football season or a Husker season. I mean, something that would take a work of God, apparently, to do these days. It's been so long. Anything, dancing unicorns. He could have asked anything to show up. And he does not. And the reason he does not is that this is really him rejecting God. I don't want you. I don't want your son. I don't want anything you've got to offer me, okay? So that's a quick setup of the scene. Now, here's where I'm going with it. How do you imagine God might respond in light of that? Well, he responds in a couple different ways. Though the king is selfish, prideful, though the people are rebellious, we still see God's grace on display in this text, and it foreshadows a greater grace to come in the New Testament. First of all, He defeats the Syrian and Israelite alliance anyway. Think about that. We don't want your help. I don't want a sign. But God will act anyway, and he will defeat them 
on their behalf. He says, you know what? You don't want a sign. I will give you a sign. I'll come up with my own sign. And his sign is Emmanuel, okay? This is the first time we see this in the Bible, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, I'm not going to work through this like I originally planned to, but in short, scholars believe, and I tend to agree, that this is a duly fulfilled prophecy, that in some sense it actually came to pass for these people, then in a greater way for us. So the way it came to pass for them is that scholars believe it predicted the birth of Isaiah's son. And he's got just the weirdest, worst name ever, okay? Um, let me try to pronounce this for you. Maher Shalah Hasbah. That is literally Isaiah's son's name. So please don't name your child that. I mean, they wouldn't, if Chris was named that, he couldn't spell it to this day. I mean, it's just horrible. But here's the significance. That name is very ominous, and it means the prey hastens. Ooh, it's eerie. And, and all it is is a signification that, hey, God is with you, though you didn't want him to be. I'm so committed to the welfare of my people, I'm going to wipe them out on your behalf. I mean, it's just sheer grace. God still acts for their salvation from an earthly enemy. Now, here's the second thing we see, though. Emmanuel means he will preserve a remnant. Now, here's the fascinating thing about God. He is a gracious God, but he's also a God of justice. And for justice to be maintained, he has to punish sin. And so he will, he will eventually judge Ahaz and the people of Judah through Alabama, through the Assyrians. They will eventually sweep in and they will feel their wrath. But we see a trace of God's grace again in chapter 8, verse 8. And, and notice this imagery. He says, it will sweep unto Judah. It will overflow and pass on. Again, the wrath of the Assyrians. Reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So the imagery is punishment will come. Judgment's coming, but it won't completely wipe them out. It won't get over their head. It'll get up to their neck, but God is committed to maintaining a remnant of his people. Eventually, Assyria, they'd be overpowered, overthrown, and yet, though small, a remnant would remain. So I see you're like, man, that's the summary. I can't imagine what the full thing would be. I know if you're a nerdy Bible scholar, email me, I'll get it to you. But the point being... God relentlessly pursued the salvation of his people. That's what makes grace grace. Didn't deserve it, spurned him at times, but he continues to be committed to David's dynasty. Now, if you know the Bible's storyline, you might be asking a question like I've asked. Sometimes I pretend like I've not read the New Testament and say, okay, God, what are you teaching me through the Old Testament? Remember, God gave Abraham a promise. And that promise was, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And of course, David's connected to Abraham's line, and it goes on through. But when you see a scene like that in Isaiah, that, wait a minute, a little remnant, 
water up to their neck. That doesn't seem like multiplication. That doesn't seem like stars in the sky. Well, that moves us to the full-on essence of Emmanuel in the New Testament. And so my second point as to how this is fulfilled for us and the significance is God guarantees salvation over our eternal enemies. So for Old Testament people, he guaranteed it for some earthly enemies. He maintained the remnant. But for everybody, for us and for people of all time, it means he guarantees salvation over our eternal enemy. And who is or who are our enemies? What's well, Satan? Sin is death, hell, and the grave. And we get the promise of Emmanuel in the middle of the sweet narrative about the incarnation. In incarnation, another kind of big word, when you think of incarnation, think of chili con carne. What does that mean? Chili with meat. And I know I've got a redneck accent, didn't do that very well, but when Jesus came, he was Jesus in meat. He's Jesus in flesh. God stepped into our existence. And so Matthew 1, 18 through 25, let me read this so we can see the beauty in the context. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And here's the key thing. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here it is, Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took her as his wife. See, the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate evidence that God is committed to our salvation from beginning to end is this fulfillment. Emmanuel, God literally being with us. And we know the facts, but let's rehearse them for a moment. I mean, it's breathtaking. God the Son, second member of the Trinity, he leaves the Godhead and literally steps from heaven to earth, is born through the womb of a virgin girl, probably in her teenage years. He cloaks himself in flesh and he literally walks among us. I mean, no false god in history was known to do that. And then he didn't just do this to get near us temporarily. He did this so he could be with us eternally. For the incarnation would eventually result in the crucifixion. You see, in this existence, political enemies, they'll come and go. But we all have one big enemy that stays with us, that hounds us. And that enemy is sin. Sin separates us from a right relationship with God. It keeps us from His peace, His presence, His purposes. And so the way by which then God forgives us our sins was by actually becoming sin for us. And so this mystery of like, how can God be gracious, yet a God of judgment, and his descendants still be multiplied as numerous as the stars in the heaven, it's actually answered in the incarnation, which would lead to the crucifixion. 
I love the way that Craig Blomberg says it. He says, Jesus was 100% God. And as such, he was able to pay the eternal penalty for our sins, for which finite humanity could not atone. Jesus was also 100% human. And as such, he could be our adequate representative and substitutionary sacrifice. So God requires perfection. So out of love, out of a desire to save us, be with us, Jesus came. And he lived the perfect life that we could never live on our behalf. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. He took our punishment on his shoulders, satisfying the justice of God. And then all we have to do is turn from our sins and trust in him. And when we do, he removes all of our stains, our filthy rags, and he replaces them with his righteousness. And we get the brand new title as children of God. We literally become his adopted sons and daughters. And because he rose again, we get to walk in newness of life. And part of our newness entails we have a brand new purpose giving to us, a reason to live. And part of that purpose is we make disciples, which means we take the same light that pierced through darkness, that traveled from Isaiah to Matthew, the glorious good news of the gospel, that God desires to be with us through his son Jesus. We take that out and we share that good news with other people. As more and more people come to faith, God gains more and more adopted sons and daughters. Thus, you can see how the original promise to Abraham is fulfilled. It's spiritual children. More and more people coming to God through the family of faith. And so, from the Old Testament, despite folly, despite disinterest, God's relentlessly committed to his people's salvation. And then in the New Testament, you see that he is so committed. God is so committed to us. Who could think of it? Who could fathom such a plan? That the sovereign God, God the Son, steps out of heaven, cloaks himself in flesh so that we could be saved, though we didn't deserve it. God loves you. He's committed to you. He will see your salvation through from start to finish. That's the big idea. Now, here's my transition. Here's my little bit of an audible this morning. We know that when God saves us, when we become his children, that we get glorious benefits. We get the penalty of sin done away with. We get his Holy Spirit living in us. We get purpose. But we also know that just because we have the empowerment of the Spirit, it doesn't mean that all pain is done away with. And that's the reason we still long for the Lord to come back. And the way this is finally fulfilled is that there will be some day when we literally dwell with God face to face continually. And on that great day, the enemy, the devil, sin and all of its effects, it's all cast away. He's cast into the lake of fire. There's no more hindrances, no more pain, no more suffering. We're in the presence of the Lord we have fellowship with him and our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ forever and forever. I know if you're young, you may not be in that big of a hurry to get there. I'm not either. But as you age, as you get some life experience, as you get some pain under your belt, you realize, oh, Jesus, come. Because it would be far better to be with you. So that's what we anticipate. So what I want to do now is try to give us a little bit of hope in the meantime. Um... I'm well aware, with my grandpa passing this year, 
other tragedies that our families experience, that Christmas will be different for a lot of people. We should cultivate joy. That's what Advent is meant to do. But I'm just well aware of the fact that there's probably people here today that you walked in and your heart's not all that satisfied in Christ. Joy may not be welling up. There's darkness. There's some despair. And what I think God put on my heart to share with you in closing this morning is that not only is God with us in every way, but Jesus himself, he identifies with us in every weakness. And this may be shocking for some of you to hear, but I think Jesus himself was depressed and even despondent and had anguish of soul on the eve of the trial of his life, on the eve of the crucifixion. Now what I want you to do this morning is see that there's hope. Your advent may not be filled with that much joy. You may be down, despondent, whether it's been a lifelong battle, seasonal, circumstantial. Your reality is that you're heavy, you're downcast, your heart is just dark this morning. Well, a couple things. As I just said, Jesus is with you. You're not alone in that. And I want you to know that, that we're with you too. Um, I have mentioned before, I've alluded to the fact that I struggle with anxiety that turns to depression from time to time. And I feel the Spirit of God even compelling me to be more open about that fight, to, to, to process that verbally, to help people understand that they're not alone, that you don't have to feel isolated. It makes you feel that way, but there's many other people in this room, including myself, that are fighting for joy during this Advent season. So you've got the compassion of your pastors, your congregational members, and most importantly, you've got the compassion of Jesus. So I just want to walk through this, how Jesus experienced this. Here's my evidence for us. Was Jesus Christ really despondent at times? Remember in Matthew 26, 38, on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus actually said these words. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I mean, let that sink in just for a minute. Who just breathed those words? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he's saying that this is the state of my soul. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke tells us that he was in such anguish as he prayed, he sweat great drops of blood. You know, medical doctors tell us that there is a rare condition. You can be under such anguish that your pores open and blood pours forth. And so if Jesus felt that way, think about it. If the incarnate Son of God even struggled, though the Heavenly Father walked so closely with Him, is there help for us? What did He do? How did He respond? Well, here's some practical coaching from the life of Jesus as I have surveyed Matthew 26. I want to leave this to you as people who may be struggling with joy during the Christmas season. How do we get through? How do we hang on? Number one, Jesus chose some close friends to be with him. And this may sound trite, but there's power in this. Jesus literally chose some close friends to be with him. In verse 37, says this in Matthew 26, 37, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. When you get down, when you get weary, your heart will want to close off. It will want to shield itself from the world, but Jesus did not withdraw. 
He trusted the individuals that were closest to him. And we need to do the same. We need to fight for relationships. We need to take our friendships to a deeper level. We need to learn to be transparent with those people that are closest to us. Real practically, I'm trying to do a better job of having a better inner circle here. I've got great pastoral support. But even this week, I reached out to my brother Cliff and I said, man, I need to have your permission to be utterly transparent with you when my soul is weary. And he gave me that. So that's a way I'm trying to grow in this. Number two, Jesus opened his soul to them. He opened his heart. That confession is in verse 38. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I'll be honest, there's a temptation not to say things like that to my boss, Chris. You know what I mean? We want to be on. We want to be good pastors. We want to always have our best foot forward. And and the lie is you can't say things like that. But the truth of God is Jesus said things like that. And it's okay to admit things like that. Think about it here. We see the king of everything confessing his weakness in this moment. We need to take a cue from him and open our souls as well. Number three, Christ asked for their help in spiritual warfare. He realized that we'll never get our heads around it. 100% God, but he was also 100% human. And that human aspect of him needed help. Verse 38 says, Remain here. Watch with me. Another text says, Pray. And another one says, Don't let yourself come into temptation. Stay awake. Fight with me. Fight with me. Remember, they let him down, but he's saying, Hey, Fight for me. Fight with me. Be be an advocate. Help me. And I hope a lesson that we can learn from this is that the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. We we can't hide in the crowd. That's why we're so passionate. We feel so inadequate at times. Look, we've got a great crowd, and we just carry a burden that more people get into community, more people get into city groups. It's not a perfect fix, but it's just a practical solution to get people deeper so they can do life together. This fallen world is too heavy to navigate alone. You've got to have help. We all need the help that our friends can offer us. Number four, another observation. Jesus poured out his heart to the Father in prayer. He did not hold back. Now Christ, he knew God's plan. I mean, he knew he would have to face the death on the cross. But in verse 39, he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I mean, he is wrestling with the will of God. And what I want to say to you is that there is room for you to wrestle with God's will. He can take it. We never want to blaspheme. We never want to be irreverent. But sometimes we couch our words with pious terms. I want you to unleash and let God know how you feel. Pour your heart out to him. It's okay to wrestle with God. And at times he won't take away the bitter cup. But you'll find that you'll find power and strength to continue the battle if you'll be utterly transparent with God. I'll tell you one realization I made in my own life was that during some of my recent struggle, coping my grandfather's passing, Brittany's postpartum, it's just been a heavy season, that I realized, you know, I've had a quiet time. I've prayed and kind of got about my way, but I really wasn't practicing this to this degree. I mean, I'm talking about utter on your face, saying, Heavenly Father, help me. And then finally, number five, final observation, he rested his soul in the sovereign wisdom of God. 
He rested his soul to God's good plan. Verse 39 says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will, or as you will. And it's just this realization that it is comforting. We've got to keep pressing it in that God has a sovereign will. He's always working behind the scenes, though we can't see it, for our good and his glory. And though our hearts are slow to catch up to that, and we should never just use that, that scripture, Romans eight twenty eight tritely, but that's a reality. Just think about the opposite. Think about people that don't have faith in God. The humanists that only live life as if random things happen with no rhyme or reason. Think about how hopeless that would be. But if you're in Christ, your God is a sovereign God who's always doing a million different things at once. He's working all the bad for good, though we can't see it. Let me close with this quote from John Piper. And by the way, several people asked for that in the first gathering. I will probably post that on a blog or something this week. I love the way Piper says it. He said, The lesson of Jesus' life and the lesson of the Psalms is this. Every cave that you're in, wandering along, feeling the rocks, stumbling, stepping, bumping your head, every cave you're in is a tunnel that will eventually open to glory. It opens into a day like today in heaven, with the sun shining, the grass green, the waters flowing, as long as you don't sit down in the cave and blow out the candle of faith. So my final pastoral exhortation would be, keep the faith. Keep hope alive. Keep fighting for it. Let us help you. Let your friends help you. Trust the promise of God. Though your cave may be dark, though there may not even be a lay of right, light in it right now, the psalmist also says, though weeping may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. We can stake our hearts in that church. Let's stand and pray together. Oh, Father, I am praying um, for our congregation today that you would be God with us. Lord, we thank you that we have the knowledge of your word, that you are actually with us. We know that. We, we thank you for that. But I'm praying that you would press that reality deep into our hearts. So pe for people this morning that are suffering, that um, their hearts just aren't that joy-filled at the prospect of Emmanuel, God, make it so. Flood us with joy or just at least give us some pockets of your peace to help us get through. And God, I pray this morning, too, that we could be conduits of your grace this season. Um, God, may we not have a secular view of the world. May we have your view. And you tell us in John 10 that there are many sheep not yet of the fold. Many, many, many more people you want to draw from darkness to light. So use us, God. May we be instruments of your good news this Christmas season. And then finally this morning, Jesus, help us to be okay with not being okay. Uh, we are a culture of joy and celebration, but God, we want to be a culture of weakness too. And so God, may we follow your model and not be, not be afraid to bear our hearts before you and before one another. <clears throat> we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.